When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Savini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Thanks for joining. We haven't done this in a while. It's been since the draft, and we've had some stuff going on. We had three weeks of OTA practices, then we had the mandatory minicamp, and now we're all heading into that five- to six-week period, the NFL hiatus before training camp. Training camp begins for the Jets on July 26th. That is their reporting date in Florham Park, New Jersey. Be a fairly typical training camp. They will have a green and white scrimmage, but my understanding is might not be at MetLife Stadium. There's another really cool venue that they're looking at. I'm not at liberty to disclose that at this point. I don't think it's firmed up, but uh, that will be a cool uh, diversion. And I'm going to spin it forward here. Instead of looking back at minicamp and OTAs, I want to spin it forward and look at some of the key storylines that I'll be writing about, you'll be talking about, and things that'll be happening in the summertime in training camp, our top storylines. And, of course, we have to start with number 77, Makai Becton and his weight issues. To me, it's amazing that an offensive lineman is getting so much attention. You know, they're usually the anonymous guys in the trenches who don't get much pub, but I think the sporting public is just fascinated by very large human beings, and we know that Makai Becton is a very large human being, and basically this is what it comes down to for him in training camp. He's got five weeks to get it together and show it up into training camp in football shape. Now, would it surprise me if he shows up and is placed on the physically unable to perform list? Well, if that happens, it probably means he's not in shape. At the final press conference at the minicamp, I specifically asked Robert Sala, do you expect Makai to be practicing when camp opens? And he replied without hesitation, yes. So if he's not practicing, that means he's either re-injured his knee or he is not in good enough shape. Becton was overweight in minicamp. Now, our, our fr- friend of the show, he's been on in the past, Boomer Esiason, you know him from WFAN in New York. He said on Tuesday that Becton was more than 395 pounds at minicamp. He said that's not speculation. He reported it on the air as fact, although he did not cite a source. I would not be shocked if that were the case because in mid-April, I spoke to Becton's personal nutritionist, a woman named Ann Claiborne, on the record, and she told me Makai was under 400. Now, she wouldn't say specifically, and I pressed her. All she would say was that he was under 400. That tells me that he was probably about a biscuit under 400, which means not much. Now, I reached out to Ann last week during minicamp, to get an update on Mackay, crickets, no reply. I thought that was very, very interesting. Now, should Jet fans be concerned? Heck yeah. No one expected 
his combine weight, which was 363. But the man is working with two personal trainers, a nutritionist. So you'd expect him to be in the 370s, maybe even 380 at minicamp. Now, I get it. He's coming off a knee surgery, but the surgery was last September, nine months ago, folks. Again, he's got five weeks to get into football shape. There's also the matter of his position. The Jets are being coy about this. I think they know exactly how they're going to play this out. My gut tells me that it'll be George Fant at left tackle and Makai at right tackle. Uh, I think they're keeping quiet for a couple of reasons, but I think the primary one is to keep Becton motivated. And quite frankly, I think the organization is so annoyed with him that they don't want to hand him anything. You recall what Robert Sala said at the Senior Bowl. It wouldn't be given to Makai, the left tackle position. He'd have to fight for it and get it back from George Fant. Nothing that has transpired over the last few months has changed their position. They're not going to hand it to Makai. They want him to come to camp in shape and motivated. And look, he can say that he doesn't want to switch. He switched to right tackle. He doesn't want to switch. No left tackle wants to switch to right tackle, especially when they're as young as he is. There's a huge money difference. Left tackles get paid more than right tackles. The five highest left tackles in the NFL average $21.3 million a year. The five highest right tackles average $18 million a year. The Fant negotiations for an extension are ongoing. And I wouldn't be surprised if that factored into the Jets' silence here as well. Perhaps they don't want to come out publicly and anoint George Fant as their left tackle would give Fant a little bit more leverage in these negotiations. I wouldn't be surprised if they come to training camp and they do some flip-flopping the first week or two, one guy at left, one guy at right, before settling in. I think there's pros and cons each way, but I think Fant prefers left tackle, and I think the organization trusts him more than Becton to protect Zach Wilson's blind side. So ultimately, I think that's why it'll go Fant on the left, Becton on the right. Actions speak louder than words. We know that. So if they sign a veteran like a Riley Reef or a Dwayne Brown in the next few weeks, we'll know for sure their confidence in Becton is wavering. So keep an eye out on that when we're all on vacation. Uh, let me also, regard to get Becton, get this off my chest. I do not care if a player or a coach doesn't like the questions I ask them. A journalist's job is is not to make friends with the people they cover. It's to report the truth. Now, obviously, Becton did not like my question about why he skipped the voluntary workouts. Yes, I know his girlfriend had a baby a month ago, but I don't think that's the only reason he missed nine weeks of voluntary work. In early May, a couple of weeks before the baby was born, Robert Sala made a public appeal in a press conference to Becton to show up. Was Sala being insensitive? He has seven kids, so he, more than any of us, can appreciate the importance of fatherhood and family. He was not being insensitive. He just wanted the player in camp. Now, the fact is, there's tension between Becton, Becton's camp, and the organization. I think Becton's people felt the Jets mishandled the injury last year, perhaps downplayed the severity. And I believe that factored into his decision to stay in Texas and work out there. So that's why I asked Becton's his reasons for staying away. Journalistically, it was a damn good question. And if that bothers so some fans, well, too bad. As most of you know, you're not going to get green and white pom-poms from me. That was a good question. And uh, 
there'll be more like it coming. I can guarantee you that. Uh, moving on, another camp story. Zach Wilson, will he make a big jump in year two? Well, there's some some real positives to take away from the offseason just from talking to coaches. Uh, I think they feel he has a greater understanding of the position. He knows when he makes mistakes as soon as they happen. Now you're going to say, well, what does that really mean? Well, I can tell you a year ago when he made a mental mistake, he didn't even know it. That's how overwhelmed he was as a rookie last year. He didn't even know when he was making mistakes. This year he knows it. As soon as he gets back to the sideline, he can tell the coaches what went wrong. So that is good. That's improvement. That's what you want to see. The coaches say this is a night and day situation just in terms of the command of the huddle, a better job with his progressions. This is a progression-based offense, this West Coast offense. You go from one to two to three. And the coaches want him to focus on his progressions more than worrying about where the safeties are located post-snap. Now, I know that sounds a little weird because you really should know where the defenders are, but the coaches believe this offense has built-in mechanisms that take the quarterback to the right read, almost like it's working on autopilot. I know that's not a totally accurate description, but you kind of get the drift where I'm coming from. Uh, they say he's getting better at that in terms, but yet... It's not all positive. The sense I get from talking to people is that he still misses too many routine throws, those layups, those short swing passes, you know, those those hitches, those angle routes to the running backs. He's got to get better at those. He, he was last in the league last year in short passes in terms of completion percentage. Got to watch that in training camp. Another training camp story, Denzel Mims. Will he make the roster? I can tell you this from talking to people about this. He was one of the stars of the offseason. They think, now this is not me, this is the Jet organization, they think this may have been a wake-up call for him. There's a sense that there are a more willingness to buy in and embrace the offense. That wasn't the case of a year ago. He came out of college out of Baylor under Adam Gase as the coach. He was an ex-receiver, a, a classic ex-split-in receiver in college which was okay under Adam Gase, but when the new regime came in, they wanted him to learn all three receiver positions. I think there was some stubbornness on Mims's part. I think he was reluctant to embrace that, and you saw what happened last year. He just really couldn't get any footing. I, the sense from the people I talked to is that he's buying in, like I said, and uh, he's doing really well. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I don't think he's going to crack the top four receivers then you have Jeff Smith, who's really good at special teams. So right now I would say Mims is on the team as the sixth receiver. They'll carry six. Now he might not dress on opening day, but I think he'll be on the team unless there are some other developments coming forward. Some other storylines. Uh, I think one of the interesting ones, at least from a fantasy football perspective, is the backfield situation with Brees Hall and Michael Carter and how that'll be split up. The organization, I can tell you this, is very high on Brees Hall. They, In terms of pure talent, they had him ranked right up there with Garrett Wilson, Sauce Gardner, and Jermaine Johnson. Like I said, just based on pure talent, ultimately he was 18th on their draft board because of the running back value not being what it used to be. But he's right there. They think he's the real deal. Now, there's going to be an adjustment period because there always is, but I can see Hall surpassing Carter in terms of touches as the season goes on. He's bigger. 
He's faster, and he's a better receiver. So I think that's going to happen. Talk about the defense briefly. Carl Lawson, all indications are that he'll be ready to go. Now, could he show up on the pup list at the first day of training camp? I think it's possible. I don't think it would be anything to be alarmed about. They expect him to be ready for opening day. It's all about opening day with Carl Lawson. It's not about being there for the first day of training camp. They're going to have a very specific plan to get him ramped up through the preseason. No rush there. Uh, the starting secondary will be interesting. Ultimately, I think the corners will be Sauce Gardner and DJ Reed, but they're not going to hand that job to Gardner. That's the company line anyway. They're going to make him earn it. I don't think that's going to take long to prove that he's better than Bryce, Bryce Hall. Sauce has some, he's already shown some innate ability. Now, I can tell you the offense ran some route combinations at him in minicamp purposely to try to confuse him. Now, there was some slight hesitation, but he quickly picked up what was happening and was able to adjust as the play was happening. Now, the goal, of course, is to eliminate that slight confusion, but the coaches were just really tickled that he was able to adjust so quickly on the fly. They rave about his football IQ. When coaches say that about a player, it's usually the translation Translation usually is they expect him to be in the lineup very quickly. Uh, so keep an eye on that. But like I said, I think it's inevitable. Uh, let's talk contracts. A couple of uh, ongoing situations with Quinnen Williams and George Fant. Now, Quinnen's interesting. I know they've been checking in with his agent through basically through the entire offseason at different checkpoints. And, you know, I, I don't, I'd be a little surprised if something gets done before the regular season. Now, if you look at all the highest paid defensive tackles in the league, the Aaron Donalds, the Leonard Williamses, Buckners, Jonathan Allens, uh, they all got paid after their fourth year at least, at least after their fourth year. So I don't think the Jets are in any hurry to do that. That would be a major, major deal. You're probably looking at something in the 17 to 20 million a year range. If he gets past 17.5, that makes him the highest paid player in Jet history. Anybody know who the current highest paid player is based on average annual value? That, of course, is C.J. Mosley at 17 and a half. So I think Quinnen will probably go past that. George Fant, I think that's something to look out for uh, as the uh, preseason wraps up, as you get closer to the regular season. The Jets really like George Fant. You know, he is at that 30-year-old mark, uh, might be even 31 now, but they see him as a young 30, 31 because he did not play a ton of snaps his first couple of years in the league. So that's something to put on the back burner. I, I think there's a chance that could happen, but probably not till a little later, a little later on. And we'll be back with some Twitter questions right after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, all right. We got some Twitter questions here. I'm going to bang through the. I got a lot of them that I want to get to. You guys really, really appreciate taking the time to send in these questions. You know, sometimes in the off season, I know fans 
you know, they can be a little bit of a lull. But these questions are really good, so I'm going to try to get to as many as I can. We'll start off with at J underscore Collins 5. Will Mike LaFleur slowly work in Garrett Wilson into their mix, similar to the way he did Elijah Moore last year, or will he take on a heavier load early in the year, early, you know, compared to Moore? Um, As you recall, last year, they gave Elijah Moore a very heavy load. Elijah Moore started week one in Carolina, even though he missed significant time in the preseason. And I think if you go back and ask Mike LaFleur, I think he probably regrets that. Elijah Moore was not ready to play because of that time he missed so, but the Jets forced fed him and put him out there anyway uh, assuming Garrett Wilson stays healthy uh, I think I think he'll be out I think they're going to give him a full load I think Garrett Wilson is too good to keep on the bench so hopefully for his sake he doesn't have to deal with what Elijah Moore did with that quad injury if he does maybe they'll scale it back but I expect him to get a full load early in the season at Greg Romano 9 haven't heard much about Michael Carter the second how was he at minicamp? Greg, when you don't hear about a guy, sometimes it's a good thing, and that's the case here. Michael Carter was there. He played. He is firmly entrenched as the starting nickel back. He is the slot corner. Jets really like what he did last year, and they totally expect him to be back in that position. At Big Dogs 13-18, it seemed that on flight 222, Sala was disappointed when Aiden Hutchinson went to Detroit. Who do you think the other top five prospects on the Jets board were since they got three of their top eight? Do you think Hutchinson was one and Sauce was two on their board? Of course, Flight 2022 was the Jets' in-house documentary uh, dropped a few days ago, five episodes. Really cool, actually. I went through all of them. I binged it. I thought Flight. I thought the episode uh, number four was the best because it got into a lot of the draft stuff. Uh, I have a pretty good handle, I think, on what the Jets draft board looked like. I think Hutchinson, Trayvon Walker, and Sauce Gardner were the top three guys on their board. Um, I don't know who was number one. It may have been Hutchinson. I don't think the Jets expected Hutchinson to last to them at four. So I think I think you may have misread any disappointment in Sala. Uh, I think... Yeah, I mean, I think Sauce might have been third on the Jets' board. And, uh, of course, they were happy to get him at four. As for the other guys, four through eight, you know, Iki Aquanu was right up there. Uh, Sting, uh, Derek Stingley Jr. was right up there as well. People may not realize that. He was in their top eight. Also, Garrett Wilson up there. Drake London was up there. Not as high as Wilson, but he was up there. And, of course, um, Jermaine Johnson at eight. So the Jets had, that was their top eight. And I think they get a guy who was on the top three in their board at number four. So that was good value. At J underscore bird 44, if there's one performance metric that you think Zach Wilson should focus on for the first quarter of the season, what should it be? And J bird answers it himself. High completion percentage for short yarded passes. Uh, yes, I think that is a is a metric he should focus on. As I mentioned earlier, he was last in the league in completion percentage on throws behind the line of scrimmage and last in throws from zero to nine yards. Now, he did have some drops. In fact, I think he had among the leaders in drops, so his receivers did him no favors. But you, when you even factor in the drops, he still had a below-average completion percentage on those passages. If he can complete, now this may sound simplistic, but if he can complete 
two more of those per game. If he turns two incompletions into completions, that will be a, about a nine or ten point jump in his completion percentage, and that's what you want. That's what he should be aiming for. This question comes from Italy. At It's Alessandro Stella. His uh, handle is LA Stella 6 Sala and Joe Douglas had no football connection before the Jets, but they still seem to be always on the same page, working really well together. Do you have that same feeling about their collaboration, and can you rank the best Jets GM head coach tandems from your time covering the team? I do get the sense that Douglas and Sala are on the same page. Uh, there hasn't been anything publicly that would indicate otherwise. Um uh, I would not proclaim them as that they're going to live happily ever after just yet. They've only been together for a year, and they really have not faced adversity. Now, I know they did go 4-13, and but that was not true adversity. Everyone expected them to rebuild last year. Um, so you never really know about a pairing until the pressure is mounting, the losses are piling up. The criticism is coming from all directions. That really tests a relationship, and they really have not been through that yet. Now, in terms of ranking them, I'd say Mike Tannenbaum and Rex Ryan were probably the best GM hate head coach tandem that I've covered. They just seem to complement each other well. Uh, I think they played off each other. Mike Tannenbaum was a deal maker. He liked to take some chances. Rex Ryan was kind of the same way, so I think they got along really well. Uh, very open relationship. I think they could go back at each other, and you want to have that open relationship. Another really good combo was Parcells and Parcells. Parcells, the GM, and Parcells, the head coach, I think worked well together. Uh, now, he wasn't the greatest drafter when it came to the college draft. Parcells wasn't great, although he did that. He did have that classic 2000 draft with the four number ones, but what he was able to do was find players that Parcells the coach knew how to integrate into his system and so maybe he wouldn't make the obvious moves he'd find guys that maybe fans didn't know much about but guys that he saw as good pieces for his system and look he doesn't need me to defend his resume it worked he's in the hall of fame at j phillips 767 if wilson shows no improvement in the first 10 ish games will the jets stay with wilson bench him for Flacco, or give Mike White a second audition? Well, look, J uh, Jordan, there's a reason why Joe Flacco is on this roster. He wasn't on this roster at the start of last season. The Jets decided to go with two untested quarterbacks, and I criticized them for it, Zach Wilson and Mike White. I think they realized that they needed a veteran about halfway through the year, and they traded for Flacco. And there's a reason why they re-signed re Flacco, because if Zach Wilson is struggling this year, they have to bench him. This is not a developmental year anymore. This is not a rebuild year with player development at the forefront. This is a year that has to be about winning. Got to win some games. 4-13 isn't going to cut it again. So if Wilson is in a prolonged slump, yes, I think Joe Flacco becomes a viable option. And perhaps even Mike White, who uh, had one good game, one bad game during his uh, time last year. But, uh, yeah, that could be a talking point if Wilson starts to struggle. Next question comes from at J.P. Waxer. Does the defensive strategy appear to be sacrificing a good run defense for the sake of pass rush 
and speed and coverage. Really good X's and O's question here, JP. We all know the Jets like smaller defensive linemen, so in a sense, yeah, they're kind of sacrificing a little bit of their run defense. They don't like the 320-pound anchor, you know, nose tackle anchor. They like the smaller, quicker guys because that's the style they play. It's a style that is conducive to rushing the passer. It's also a style that you may not know this that relies heavily on the offense. The Jets' defensive style only works if they're playing with the lead or they're in a close game. If you're behind, it doesn't work. If you're 21 points behind in the third quarter, the other team's not going to be dropping back to throw the ball. They're going to be running the ball on you, and that's where the Jets get exploited. So this defense relies on the offense to get them points and keep them in the game. Obviously, the offense did not do that last year for the first half of the year, especially. That's why the defense was put in some extremely difficult situations. So it's really a complementary situation. At its finest, the offense is controlling the ball on the ground, chewing up clock, scoring points. Defense comes on the field, you're much more aggressive, you can rush the passer, and that run defense doesn't get exploited as much as it would if you're playing from a deficit. Next one from at Speedy Hanu. What's the ceiling for this offense in 2022? Could they be top 10 or top 5? Speedy, I would say hit the brakes a little bit there. The Jets are not going to be a top 10 offense this year. They were 26th last year in yards, 28th in points. There, I mean, that would be a miraculous turnaround. Here's what's going to happen to the offense this year. They're going to have growing pains early on. Now, you may not want to hear this, but look, Zach Wilson is a second-year quarterback. Four of their five top skill position players are rookies or second-year players. Hall, Carter, Wilson, Moore, rookies and second-year players. There's going to be growing pains. The offense is going to go through some tough spots early on. I think they'll get better as the year goes on. I think a realistic expectation, I mean, if they could somehow go from 26th and yards to somewhere in the 18 to 22 range, I think that is a fair expectation for improvement. They're not going to become the greatest show on turf overnight, especially with the Becton question on the offensive line. But there should be some inherent improvement just based on the talent they've added. But the talent will take time. It's going to be a year where you're going to need that defense to carry you through that first part of the schedule. That's going to be the way this season falls. And that's the end of this podcast episode. I want to thank everyone for stopping by. I hope you all have a great vacation. It's coming up. I'm going to shut it down for a little bit for a few weeks. Uh, hope to get away a little bit. Going to try to do some things that I haven't done. Going to try to make my first appearance at Saratoga. I've never been to Saratoga before. I have some friends up there, so we're planning a trip. That'll be fun. And before you know it, it'll be July 26th, and we'll be back in Florham Park. Thanks for listening all year. Thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin. He, he's the best. And we'll talk to you next time on Flight Deck. Flight Deck.